Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Zach, thank you. Uh, Well done. And parents, see what you have to look forward to. So if you're student is asking for saran wrap before camp, now you know why, and you can. (laughs) And thank you, those of you who went, uh, Caleb, Mallory, Marley, Caroline, Caroline, to leave anybody out, Marley, thank you for serving our community. Uh, That way is really meaningful uh, that you guys give up time and and, uh, other things you could be doing, so thank you. What's the perfect vacation for you? Is it mountain? You got two options, mountains or beach. Okay, you don't have any time to think about it. How many mountain people we got here? Wow. How many, many beach people? Yeah. Oh, it's pretty, pretty close, maybe 60, 40 mountains. If you're like me, and I bet even those of you who voted, it's really difficult to make that decision. I love, I love them both a lot. Uh, our son Chris and his wife uh, Allie just moved to Portland. They actually can do both the same day, which is completely not fair. Um, but they do. Um, so last week, we, that really has nothing to do with the sermon except to say last week we saw Jesus climbing a mountain, uh, partially to get alone, uh, sitting down and teaching. Today... Uh, we get beach. Last week we got mountains. Today we get beach. Uh, well, lake. So, lake beach. Um, we're going to engage an account in the life of Jesus uh, on the lake. And his disciples, it's seen by some as what scholars call a literary pause. A sort of a break in the action. A narrative space that John Creates. Remember, John is not most concerned with chronological order as we look in his gospel. So he's, he's kind of shoehorning this account of Jesus at the lake between two really important events. One is the feeding of 10,000 plus people, which we looked at last week. And then his unpacking and applying, extrapolating that feeding of the 10,000, which We'll look at next week. In between, there's this story John tells. And it's interesting because he tells it, even uncharacteristically so for him, in a very understated way. Um, Sort of unusual for John. I had some struggles with this particular text at first, and here's why. I preached it three years ago here. uh, Probably not here, but in our community and so, like, in the, in the kingdom of preachers, like, three years isn't long enough, Brian, right? Like, because you know they'll remember this, you know, that they've heard it before. Um, so, sorry if you remember it, but I think it has something to say to us. It's not exactly the same, uh, but, but uh, I, I have made some shifts and different application, different applications, but it's pretty close. Uh, so let's dive in and see Jesus, not on top of a mountain, but majestically striding on a lake. Let's hear God's word. John six fifteen to 21. John writes, then Jesus, knowing that they, they being the Jewish religious leaders, Knowing that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The first time he was getting away with his disciples, this time is by himself in solitude. I I hope for you that solitude is a part of the rhythm of your life with God. If it isn't, I I want to nudge you to consider that. 
It's really, really an important. We live in a culture that doesn't know how to be with itself very well. It doesn't know how to lay the phone aside, to turn news off or music, and just to be with themselves and with God. And it's only in solitude that some pretty important things are going to be forged in your life. So Jesus is an example here for us. John writes, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake and got in a boat to go to Capernaum which is on the other side of the lake. It was now dark, and Jesus had still not come back to them. So off they go. The lake became very rough due to high winds. After rowing about three or four miles, anybody do crew in college? Anybody row a lot? I don't know how long it takes to row three or four miles. Anybody know? I mean, that sounds like a long time to me. Um... The lake became very rough. After rowing three or four miles, the disciples saw Jesus walking toward them on the lake, and they became terrified. But he said, it is I, do not fear. And they were willing to receive him to the boat. And immediately, the boat was resting on the shore, right where they wanted to go. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, these are the ones that Jesus had fed, realized that only one boat had been there, and Jesus had not gotten on it with the disciples, but that they had gone away alone without him. So after a boat from Tiberias landed, probably a rental commercial boat, landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and had been blessed by the Lord, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So the first verse we read in verse 15, John ends, he's really ending the narrative. In fact, we looked at this verse last week of the feeding of this massive group of people by taking a boy's happy meal and feeding a whole bunch of people with it. And John ends that story by saying Jesus knows something. He knows that people were coming to take him by force and make him king, and so he withdraws. There's two active verbs here. This is not our main point, but I think it's important to take note. Jesus knew and Jesus withdrew here. Consider what Jesus knew. He just performed this amazing sign with thousands of people, this crowd, and he knew he couldn't keep this on the DL. There's no way. This wasn't like Jesus reaching someone on the margins. This is a very public miracle. There has been no flying under the radar. He also knew that there were politically ambitious nationalists in the crowd. And they were going to try to leverage this For their advantage. They were going to use Jesus for their cause. Their cause being to create a resistance against Rome. And there's a whole sermon in there that we're not going to do about leveraging Jesus for our own purposes. That's so contrary to the core, the essence of his call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up. His cross to follow. This was nothing like that for these people. So Jesus knows that's going to happen and he withdraws into solitude. Why? Because he's afraid? No, I don't think so. Because he, he wants nothing to do with this vision, with this plan. They were looking for a king. Jesus is acting kingly. To act like a king in their image. They wanted him to be like they expected their king to rule. With dominance. With command and control. To take charge of the culture. And put their agenda into action. They wanted to force him. To force their enemies. Into subjugation. And put them in power. That was their vision. But his kingdom was nothing like their vision. His kingdom was not of this world. They were operating in the ways of the world. 
His kingdom operated a very different way, very different set of truths, very different values, because it was fueled by a very different life. His kingdom sought to serve, their vision sought to usurp. His kingdom operated with a deeper spiritual power than the authority that they were living with. The currency of his kingdom was love. The currency of their kingdom was gaining dominion over others, getting the upper hand. The way of his kingdom would in time become captured and demonstrated and embodied in a cross. Jesus is speaking about the cross as the symbol of his kingdom before he even ever goes to it. Remember? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For Jesus, the cross was to become an instrument of love that supplied the solution. Their way viewed the cross as an instrument of execution to get rid of a problem. Jesus was committed to this way of the cross. Now don't be fooled by the contrast between Jesus and these guys into a wrong idea of Jesus. He was no less ambitious than they were. But his ambition was driven toward a radically different destination. And it required always a cross. Death always preceded life for Jesus. His ambition was God's kingdom, not a thirst for kingdoms of men. He was seeking to save people he loved. They were not. He was not interested in their vision. He knew their vision and he withdrew himself from it. John writes that evening came and his disciples went down to the lake and got him in a boat to cross into Capernaum. So that's their setting. Evening, lake, disciples on the lake in a boat. Setting is important for this story. In fact, it's fascinating, actually. There's a couple of different things I want you to see. First, darkness and turbulence. This story is filled with darkness and turbulence. John makes it a point to tell us it had become dark. Darkness is a significant part of the context of this story. The inability to see clearly. The inability to see what's in front of you or much at all. But not just darkness, turbulence. You ever been in the dark and in turbulence at the same time? You ever been in a boat being thrashed around in darkness at the same time? I have. It's not fun. Uh, it's very discombobulating. It was nighttime and the waters are getting rougher by the minute. Add a storm to darkness and lake, and you got a real problem. It's very unpredictable. Jerky movements, pushing and pulling, tossing and balance, disorientation, all adds up to crisis. It feels a little bit like, like life sometimes, doesn't it? That's the second contextual item I want you to see your crisis. Three or four miles of hard rowing. So the disciples are in this dark storm in a boat with turbulence. And they're doing all they know to do. Start rowing harder. That's our natural response. When crisis hits, most of us do one or two things. We move towards determination or despair. Sometimes it's called fight or flight. Are you prone to one more than the other? A lot of us are very capable of both. Depends on the situation. The disciples are fighting. They're going to row and row and row hard. 
Our natural response in crisis is to try to get things under control or escape it. That's what they're doing. Sometimes that works. You've got a problem. You address it. You analyze it. You, you come up with a solution, and it works. Crisis averted. You, some of you, have work that is constantly dealing with crises. And you're highly trained on how to do that. Uh, we have to do that often. Sometimes that doesn't work. You analyze it, you diagnose it, you prescribe a solution, and it doesn't work. What do you do then? What do you do when it doesn't work? What if you can't get it under control? What, what if this is the kind of thing that can't be fixed by your effort? Or your willpower? <clears throat> what if it's bigger than your capacity or your capability? What if it's way above your pay grade? What if you're not strong enough, smart enough, quick enough, articulate enough, perceptive enough, wise enough, holy enough, good enough, wealthy enough, healthy enough? What if you're not? What if you're too slow, too poor, too weak? too tired, well, then you have a crisis that you cannot fix. And that's where the disciples were, on this boat, on the lake, in a storm. They had done all they could. And John doesn't explicitly say it, but the environment is it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And then there's another contextual item that's important and it's called isolation Jesus is in the mountain in isolation they have gotten in the boat without him they made it it's so odd and this is an interesting part of the story I hope I get to ask one of the disciples like what caused you to cross the lake at night why didn't you just stay? Were there not accommodations? Did you not prepare for it? Were there other reasons? And what caused you to do it without Jesus? What caused you to leave him and just go? I don't have answers for that. But there's a sense in which the isolation of the story is bigger and more of a crisis than the water and the turbulence. They're out there without Christ. John kind of subtly sneaks that in to the story, I think. Jesus, he says, had not come back to them. No, Jesus, that's bad. That's the part of the story that's troublesome. You don't know where God is in the crisis. Or you feel alone. And so we, we see these guys, and we want to say, what Jesus asked them in another gospel account, possibly of the same story, we're not sure. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Placing their trust in the presence of God. Could they have done that there and it had been different? Even though they can't see him. Faith, the evidence of things we can't see, the substance of things we hope for doesn't seem like they have faith. Knowledge could have been even better. Spiritual knowledge is, is sort of faith grown up. It's not just, I'm placing my confidence, even though I may not feel like it or see it. Knowledge is, there's a confidence I have because I have come to know this God. I know He's here in this storm with me. But it seems like the disciples have neither. And then there's another crisis, at least it is at the start. And I'll use a word for it. It was epiphany. You know that word, epiphany? It's a God sighting. They see God. Jesus is, they look up and they see this figure walking on the lake. And John tells us, He's coming near, and they become terrified, absolutely terrified. You know, well, why are they terrified? 
maybe it's because they can't really make him out. Maybe they don't know it's Jesus. It's just dark, stormy, turbulent, and they see this shadowy figure coming towards the boat. That's very, very possible. This is like a bad dream. It's like we don't need this too. Or maybe they did see that it was Jesus and he's walking towards them in the storm. And it's like, it's not where he belongs. We didn't envision him doing this. Maybe in some ways they had this expectation, while different in kind, but different or similar than the ones who wanted to take him king by force. We want Jesus to not, we want to be him to be who we want him to be. Not barefooting out there on the lake, walking toward us in the dark. Well, now, now we land on the important part of the passage. And it's God speaks. This is the game changer. Jesus speaks. They're terrified. He's moving toward them. Can you picture that? And he says, it's me. It's me. Don't be afraid. The, the literal reading is, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. That's the literal. Uh, some believe, it. you may know that sometimes Jesus will say, I am, and it's a reference to his deity. It, 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 it kind of was a, an interesting name for God from the Old Testament. I am. Moses asked, who do I tell them that you are God when he has to go to Pharaoh? And God says, tell them I am. It, it, we we kind of lose it in English. It, it's kind of me, it kind of means I am so beyond anything you can put in language and I'm, and I'm above it. So just tell them I am is here. So some scholars think maybe Jesus is referring to that. Most say, no, I think he's saying, it's me. He just happens to use a similar language. It could be either way and not particularly relevant. I think Jesus is just saying, it's me. And everything's going to be all right. So here's my question. We're about to finish this part. Where is fear or anxiety nudging you right now? Where is it present in your life? To use this story, can you see, can you envision Jesus walking on the choppy waters toward you? And and would you just for a moment hear him say, It's me. It's me. You're going to be all right. I think that's a powerful story for us. Are you familiar with all the ways God's Word talks about fear? Isaiah wrote, do not fear, for I am with you. I will take you by the right hand, and I will walk with you. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and request, present them to God. 1 John 4 talks about how a mature love, we talked about a maturing faith, growing up into knowledge, how a mature love drives out fear. Psalm 23 maybe is the most famous one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, why? Because you are with me. You are walking on the choppy waters toward me. Hey, it's me. I think that's God's word for us today. I think that's God's word for us. You know, we don't, we don't get a lot more detail in this story. Like I said, John, John kind of tells a story like a, a true Midwesterner. Pretty understated. Uh, not a ton of detail. He, he, he only says here that the disciples, and he says this awkwardly, by the way. The disciples led him in the boat. I don't know how your translation, if you have your Bibles open, but like 
It's really different language right here. It's literally, it says, and the disciples were willing to let him in. Really odd way of saying it. Uh, th- does that mean they're a little bit reluctant to let him in? They're not sure what's going to happen? Or does it mean the opposite? Like they really wanted him in the boat. Um, John just says it kind of awkwardly. They're willing to receive him. But then hear this. And immediately. That's not one of John's words he uses very often. Immediately they found themselves on the shore. I think, I think that's a miracle right there. I, I think that miracle gets missed. You know, we don't think about that. We, we, we like the, like, calming the storm, you know, be still and the, and the water's quiet. Stories. And, and, we've, and a lot of times we've made this story about Jesus barefooting on the lake. And that's cool. I mean, that's a, that's, try that, you know. But I suspect... Part of the sign here, the thing that's pointing to Jesus, is that he's getting into the boat, and all of a sudden they're where they intended to go. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that, um, but the, the disciples are intact. And I, and I would offer, is that not a miracle? God is present, involved, active, his kingdom at hand with us, helping us get where he wants us to go. One of my reflections this week was just on this whole, whole like chapter. And I thought, you know, there's 10,000 people witnessing this blatant miracle. Um, but anybody could have witnessed that. It, you didn't necessarily have to be his follower. He's sharing his bread, and that's beautiful. And if Jesus had like calmed the storm here, and maybe he did that too, but John doesn't tell us, like anybody I think could have witnessed that. But I think only in faith can one experience the miracle of the boat getting to the beach. Because you have to actually be in the boat with Jesus, and that meant being willing to use John's language, to let him in. That's been my reflection. That that this isn't one of those like famous signs. This is perhaps a statement from God to us. Are we willing to receive him in his terms in our life? And uh, that's where it gets very personal, doesn't it? Because we know what those places, where those places are. There's sometimes so many places that we'd like to keep him out of. We'd like to get in our boat and get away at that point. But that's where God wants to meet us. In the awkward, in the hard, in the difficult. I've been med- I was telling the worship team this morning, I've been meditating this week on Psalm 11. It's not a real fa- famous one. Uh, you can read it on your own. I'm, it's not on the uh, screen or anything, but it starts, and I'm not even going to quote it very well. Um, it starts with the, the psalmist saying, God is my refuge. And then it's as if he's quoting a friend, saying, it's obviously this person's in a, going through a difficult time. And he's saying, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountain? And, and he goes on and says, it is God who's in his holy temple. And he's examining the hearts of men. And I think that's the same message as that is Jesus is saying. It's me. I am with you. Whatever you are going through, he is with you. And he wants to be with you. He wants you to say, get in the boat. Watch your boat right now. What's that look like? Is it, is it one of those like rowboats that's pretty easy to kind of flop yourself in? Or have you constructed a yacht that looks pretty near impossible to 
climb up to. Jesus wants to get in our boats with us. Let me pray, and then we'll transition. Lord, um, we are conflicted people, individuals. We live in a world, uh, even in our inner lives, in our own heads, and community even, and that feels sometimes like there's darkness and turbulence, and it's hard sometimes to make sense of it. Lord, we pray that we would be able to see you saying, it's me. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will go with you. I will hold your hand and walk with you. Lord, give us faith. Give us faith that will grow up into knowledge. Like the Apostle Paul said, I know in whom I believe. I know he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. That aspiration, the apostle said, that I want to know Christ, not just believe in him. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Lord, call us into that way. Lord, we don't want to use you to leverage you, to serve our own agendas. Lord, we come before you asking you to come into our worlds as they are and let you teach us and be with us and call us into radical discipleship on your terms. Lord, you are a good and safe teacher. You know what's best for us. You love us. You receive us right as we are. Lord, last night I was, I was walking, as you know, and just recounting my life and all the fits and starts and highs and lows of my life and just said, Lord, there's been one constant. You've always been there and you've always loved me. Everything else has changed. I'm so grateful. Make that our story, Lord. Be our constant. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm not done yet. Um, I'm going to spend a few minutes with you, and I'm going to share some things with you, mainly one thing, and this is going to not be an easy conversation. Um, If you're visiting and a guest and new... um, I, I want you to say, welcome, we're glad you're here. If you decide you don't want to stay, uh, you have freedom to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this for about seven or eight minutes, and then we're going to worship uh, together. So um, I don't want you to hear, I think this is an awful, terrible thing I'm getting ready to say, but it is a hard thing. Um, so since Cindy and I moved here in 2013, the plant... Rock Hill, and some of you were with us uh, when we did that. One of the constants in my life, I'm, by the way, I'm going to read this because words are important. Um, one of the constants in my life and in the life of our community has been relationship with Dave and Rachel Clausen. Uh, Dave has been... Dave's been a faithful and generous friend. Too many of us. In fact, uh, when Cindy and I moved here, we lived with them for about six weeks. They took us homeless couple in their house. Uh, Dave has served, as many of you know, uh, in partnership with this ministry, as a member of our leadership team in the beginning, and that became elder team, I think seven of the nine years we've been here. Um, I'm deeply grateful for Dave and Rachel uh, and what they've meant to our community in many, many ways, and I know many of you feel that too. So two weeks ago, Dave shared with myself and Brian that he was stepping aside from the elder team. 
So for the past three years or so, uh, they've been challenging uh, in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of us, not only in our community, and you don't need me to tell you this, but in our city, in many congregations, uh, in families, our nation, and our world. Uh, In our community, I think many of us have felt like we've been working in overdrive, Um, praying, wrestling, discussing, sometimes debating, advocating for the unity of the church, ironically unity that is already ours in Jesus. While there's been a lot of missteps, mistakes, fits, and starts, I am proud and I am grateful of the way so many in our community, so many of you, have sought to live in this unity that we share in Jesus. For those of you who've been seeking that way and working for that unity, I want to say to you, thank you. Unity was the heart of Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross. You can look it up in John 17. I'm especially grateful for Dave and his partnership in this fight for unity. And it sometimes has felt that way. But I want to add a note. Dave and I, and Brian, I would include in this as a fellow elder, we have experienced deep, deep unity as brothers, we have shared in the life of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's been a wonderful journey uh, for us. Sometimes an exhausting one. Uh, if you know Dave and me, you may know we're about as opposite as two individuals can be in personality. Um, and, and also, if you know this about us, we've never backed away from each other when we see things differently. But I can speak for Dave and and myself in saying we have come to love each other deeply uh, from the soul. Uh, So I know for many of you the question now is why did Dave resign? And I want to be clear, and I'm being a little bit redundant here, but I think it's important. It wasn't because of disunity. Dave, neither Dave or I or Brian are not at odds with each other. We've worked hard, not only to be unified, but we've also felt a sense of call and stewardship to work towards unity uh, in this community and to try to model it. But there's another issue, and it's of a different nature and kind than unity. And the best word we have for it is alignment, or, or more realistically, misalignment. Dave and I have always known we don't see some issues the same. If you know both of us, that won't surprise you. Um, We've had a lot of conversations through these nine years about many issues, more than I can count or remember. And we've often had to acknowledge our differences. But by the way, when I add a caveat, we agree on a whole lot more than we disagree about. So that's important not to lose that perspective sometimes. And until recently, I think we always felt like um, our differences were asking us to press on in unity and to continue together in spite of them, especially over the last two or three years as the culture and sometimes the community were sparring But I think over the last several months, we've both began to realize that our misalignments are leading us in different directions. And we've had a lot of conversations about that. I want to be clear about something. This was Dave's decision. Um, He was not asked to leave, nor was it my desire that he would step aside. But it, it is a mutually affirming decision. Um, we both have peace about it. Dave and Rachel's gifts and passion um, have been such a meaningful part of our community.
And it's difficult for me to uh, envision <clears throat> life without them here. Uh, and I want to be clear, they're not jetting out of our community tomorrow. I think you're still going to see them. But they have indicated that over the coming weeks and months, they'll be transitioning to God's next chapter for their ministry and, and a new community as well. One thing I want to add is Dave's involvement in, you may know about, in this organization called Reaching and Teaching. They, he, he's been teaching pastors in overseas settings. And it's really been awesome to watch him light up uh, with that. I've enjoyed that. <clears throat> so I don't want to leave you feeling like this announcement ended with some kind of elephant in the closet. I'm sure there's questions you have regarding the nature and the content of what I have labeled misalignments. Uh, and before I offer a few of those to you in Dave's words, I want to say a couple things. Um, because one of the things that can easily happen in a community when things like this happen is that people start filling in the gaps and narratives begin to get created. And I want to ask you, please don't do that. There's a good chance if you do that, your narrative won't be accurate. So you've got to be curious and ask if you want more information. <clears throat> and, you, and please, you can, I don't mean just me, Dave too, or Brian. Or, um, so my first point is, I want you to know, I have no theological secrets. I have no positions I'm keeping in the closet. Uh, if you listen to my teaching week after week, you should have a pretty good idea about what I might believe and value. Um, I wouldn't know how to teach or serve you as pastor any other way. I also want to say this. Dave and I's differences, while meaningful, they are nuanced. They're not opposite most of the time they're nuanced but they're meaningful nuances and and they served us well for many years and then we realized that they weren't and that's okay even though it's so so hard so rather than in use my words to try to describe uh, the nuances and bear with me as I bring it up here um, Dave sent me, not for this purpose, that I would read it uh, for you. He just sent me uh, some of his talking points he said might be helpful to frame how he's resigned. And, and I debated whether to use my words or his words, but I really want you to hear it from him. Um, and he's, he's accurate, acted and so honorably that I think it's fair and good and right that you hear it in his words. So it's a little bit awkward for me, too, to be honest. I have to confess that. Because, I mean, it's, all this is awkward, but it's a little bit awkward because he says some nice things about me. And I'm not trying, I don't want you to hear that as me trying to somehow gain a favorable or upper hand. I mean, I, I don't want to answer to God for that. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, so here they are. I'm going to read them. Uh, for some time, I have felt that Jim's vision on a number of things and my vision for Rock Hill are moving in different directions. We've worked long and hard to find middle ground, but over time, I've had a growing sense that the middle ground we sought to find isn't realistic. There is no sense whatsoever that I am leaving out of anger or hurt or frustration. I believe that Jim is a man of character who deeply loves the Lord and Rock Hill's people. But we see things different ways. We see different ways in reaching the kingdom's objectives and how we can participate in the work of Christ. Simply put, I don't want to invest so much a part of my life in Jim's vision and methods for the kingdom. I don't believe they are wrong or unbiblical. Rather, I see scripture and the work that we are called to differently. I believe the best course of action for me to take is to resign as an elder and to leave Rock Hill. Uh, this saddens me deeply, but at the same time, if I stay, I believe I would become a divisive 
or destructive presence. By the way, I don't, I don't believe that. I've never known Dave to be either of the, those. I think that's a reflection of his humility. Um, uh, but that, that's his position, and I respect it. I don't believe it's good, or I don't believe that being destructive or divisive is a good or godly course of action for me to take. The last thing I want to do is split the church or hurt Jim, who's been a good friend and a faithful pastor to me. Instead, it's better for me to leave and find a church where I have more agreement for the vision and the methods by which we will work to accomplish our mandates from Christ. I'm praying that God will use Rock Hill and Jim to accomplish his work. I think there's a place for Jim's vision of the church in Lawrence and for the kingdom. It's just not where I think I should be. And his last statement was, I need to make one more thing clear. I am not leaving to send a message. I'm praying for wisdom and grace for you and the body. So I'm just going to make a few more comments, and then I'll be done. Uh, I want to repeat, um, Dave and Rachel have loved and served this community well, and uh, I imagine they're probably going to hear this on, on the podcast. So I just want to say, I mean, I'll say it to them many times. But thank you, Dave and Rachel. And I hope you can say that to them. Um, and I want to add more clarity. Uh, I am willing to address, you may still think, I, I, I still don't know what the misalignments are specifically. I am willing to address them in community. Uh, whether that is, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I'm going to give you uh, a, a, an invitation. Whether that's in a video format or I make podcasts on topics or it's a group setting such as Tuesday night, Great Commission training, and maybe even occasionally Sunday morning. Um, so what I'm inviting you to do is if you have specific questions, like you are going to hear me in the coming weeks and months, be more explicit, or, or maybe not more explicit. I think I've tried to be explicit with you, but I don't want there to be lack of clarity in the vision that God has given in the direction we're going. Uh, I want to be as clear as I can. Uh, two years ago, God really challenged me, and I really challenged me, to, to grow in my ability to live courageously and with, and with clarity. And, uh, and I'm committed to that way. Uh, so I want you to email or text me if you have specific questions about any issue. It doesn't matter to me what the issue is. We'll, we'll discern how to best address it. We'll discern is this like just your issue or... This is something other people want to know. I am willing to talk about any of it. And we'll do so as best as we know how in, in God-honoring ways. I'm not interested in, in winning over someone else's position uh, or proving them wrong. Uh, I have my positions because I think they're right. Why would I have a position if I didn't think it was right? That would, that would be the epitome of folly. But, that, but, but I don't want you to hear, I think I'm always right. That, that's the epitome of arrogance, and I don't want to live that way. Um, I'm almost done. Thank you for your attentiveness. I know many of you have commented over the last several months that we feel stuck as a congregation. So this week I was meeting, Brian and I were meeting with David Manor, who's a, who's a dear friend. David is the executive director of our denomination at the state level. And we were talking about this very thing of stuck. He said, Jim... I want you to hear something. Every church in our two-state region, which is 400 and some, are stuck. He said almost every church in North America is stuck. And I think that's an important perspective. That doesn't, like, excuse anything. It's a reality that we're living in as a culture, and the church is reflecting that reality many times. I know we've been stuck. I think that's changing. I don't think it's changing because Dave Clawson resigned, but because of many other things I see God doing. Quiet things often, uh, actions, words. It's taken a lot of patience and perspective over the last three years uh, to navigate in a culture that is reacting and sees one way through differences, polarization. It's taken a lot of perspective and patience. 
I'm not a flawless pastor. You're not a flawless people. So I hope we can all, and whatever that means, get over ourselves a little bit. Um, but I believe God is in our midst. I believe he's present. And I sincerely hope you will go forward with us. If you feel like you cannot follow the vision God has given, I understand. I don't want that for you. It's like I don't want it for Dave. Um, I want to close with two things that reflect my heart. I want to be a community fixed on Jesus. He is our God in person. And I believe he's with us and speaking to us through his spirit. He's dwelling. Secondly, I want us to reflect Jesus' missionary heart. It's why I'm here. I hope it's why you're here. There's plenty more that needs to be done in the church. But those two things um, I would give my life for. And never less. I want that for us, that we would live our lives as Jesus would if he were us. And he is living in us. So it's available. That's his vision for us, is that we would live our lives as he would if he were us. Let me pray for us. Uh, Chance is going to come lead, or the team's going to come lead us in a closing song. I know this is hard. Uh, I don't hope there's been nothing about this that's felt cold, calculated, or cavalier. Um, that's not my heart. Uh, I, I really prayed that any of those things, because sometimes in order to keep yourself together, you have to, have to like, galvanize yourself a little bit. But uh, I hope it didn't come across that way. If it did, please forgive me. Uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Dave and Rachel. I love that man and that woman. And uh, the way that he has walked with integrity, uh, with commitment, with humility. I'm grateful. And um, bless them as they go. Lord, bless us as we seek to fulfill your vision. Inspire us, call us, work with us right where we are. We're not flawless, and that starts with me. God, we, we have a heart, we ache to see this beginning in this city, people to come to know the life that we're living in. We want it to be their reality. Lord, all I have in you is enough for me. I'm not looking to climb another rung on the ladder. I just want to know you more. So God, bring us along in your way, truth, and life, we pray. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.